The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods and today we're going to be talking about client-centered approaches and treatment. And our guest today is Jimmy Destry who was born and bred in Brooklyn. He's lived around New York City for his entire 54 years. He is currently lives with his wife, Roberta, and their children, James and Rihanna. Yep. You got it right, Mary. All right. Hey. How up 55? I just had a birthday. Oh, well, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Um, and One you're year brave to even want to talk about it. So. <laughs> um, so still a partner of the band Blondie, Jimmy currently is serves as a full-time drug counselor and therapist at New York City's Carnegie Hill Institute while pursuing his drug and alcohol license um, at New York City's uh, SUNY. So at Carnegie Institute is a long-established and respected outpatient recovery center in New York City. Jimmy spends five days a week helping some of the city's acute and chronically addicted find new life and hope using the newest therapeutic tools of the trade. He claims that he's been incredibly lucky not once in his life but twice, having found a new calling that he's equally passionate about. So welcome, Jimmy, and thank you for agreeing to spend this thank hour you. with us. Thank you for, thank you for having me. Um, so we're talking about client-centered treatment, and um, there's a story that goes to that from your perspective. But client-centered treatment is one of those phrases that means everything and can mean nothing. Yeah. And um, I just wonder uh, what your interpretation of client-centered treatment is. Well, it, it's not getting everybody under the same umbrella, basically. Uh, it used to be in treatment, you would come in, and uh, no matter what your beliefs or what your uh, particular philosophy was, or, you know, everybody, even adult, even when their brain is adult, does have a philosophy they go by, you know. Uh, and put it in, they would put the treatment under one umbrella, and it would be AA or NA or NEA and a 12-step approach, and, you know, that was it. You know, and uh, basically, it doesn't work for everybody. So uh, the client-centered approach, in my view, is to find out what the person's makeup is and give them the kind of treatment that they would adhere to the best. Uh, in some cases, it is AA and NA. In some cases, it's just cognitive behavior therapy and maturity programs. In a lot of uh, places, it's ed- in a lot of instances, it's education and and whatever it takes, whatever the client latches onto, uh, and you build it into their treatment plan and follow through with it. And I find that when a client is really into their treatment in that aspect, that they, they uh, it works. It works a lot better. And in your experience, um, are you seeing that one treatment is people prefer to others, or I think people prefer to uh, actually. Turn the page. I've seen that happen. And when they go to AA, they're constantly reminded of their disease or ailment or affliction. 
And, uh, you know, I find that the ones that could turn the page and, and move on with their lives and, and actually forget their addiction to an extent that they could live a normal life, is that, that's what works the best. And I've had people sober for years that I've known, that, and myself as well, who did not even step into an AA meeting room. You know, and it's worked for me, and it's working for a lot of people in this uh, new community I'm working with. And when we're talking about client-centered treatment, um, are you seeing differences with women and men, or are you seeing that? Not really. I, I see uh, differences with people who want it, who really want to get sober, and people who are still ambivalent. And the ambivalence is the one thing that you can't fight. You have, they have to make a decision along with you for your treatment to work, you know. They have to make a decision along with their counselor, let's do it now. Uh, there's no difference between men and women. Uh, men usually uh, are a little more adamant that they want it their way. <laughs> you know, women are a little more open, I found out. But uh, it seems that uh, there's no difference uh, as far as making up a treatment plan to their desires and, and wishes. Um, probably one of the most burning questions that I think all the listeners have is, what made you decide to change careers? Because you were very successful in Blondie. and um, Well, yeah. I was sort of uh, not particularly happy with going on the road again with a new baby, and I made a deal with my band, sort of, you know, for my touring to... Uh, you know, pay me a certain amount and I'll stay home and I'll work with you on records and stuff like that. And I really, when I came out of my last program, which was an educational program, I learned a lot about, you know, how I was treated and, you know, and the treatment aspects of uh, recovery itself. And I learned, to go, you know, I decided to go back to school and learn more and... It just wasn't for me at that point. I, I like going to work every day and coming home every day and just having a normal life, and it's, it's a great feeling. Um, going back and having a second career um, later in life, has, has that been challenging? Yeah, oh, sure. Being in school with a bunch of uh, people half my age is challenging. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's really funny, actually, because I actually do my homework now. <laughs> Uh, it's it, it's really challenging to start from scratch. Uh, I work with a lot of uh, physicians and and psychologists and other counselors who have been doing it for years, and I'm learning a lot off them every day. Uh, I just enjoy I ju- enjoy the work tremendously, really. And I've got a big client base now, and it, it's just a challenge every day. It's wonderful, you know. What I have to learn is is not to take everyone's problems home with me. Yeah. So you get very personal with these people, and you get very tight with them in a way, and I have to learn to divorce myself and put up my boundaries. But that's, you know, part of the game, part of learning. Right. Um, you had mentioned earlier how um, 12 steps aren't for everyone. Um, do you advocate for people not to go? or do No, you... not at all. If they believe that will help them, whatever it takes. Okay. I just, I just don't like the idea of being handed a disease. I, I, I believe leukemia is a disease, and multiple sclerosis is a disease. I think addiction is an affliction brought on by choice. And if you take a little bit of will, I don't believe you're powerless. I mean, any addict could wake up in the morning with 50 cents and wind up with a few bags of dope at night. That's not powerless. That's very powerful. If you could use that same power <laughs> to stay sober, it works. 
Um, I know uh, I had met Jimmy at the Advocacy and Action Conference that NADAC, the Association for Addiction Professionals, and NATAP sponsored, and that was your first experience in going to Capitol Hill and advocating. And yeah. What did you take away from that? Well, first of all, they eat better than we do. I ate in their cafeteria. It was wonderful. Uh, <laughs> secondly, I mean, the halls of power, they're, they're a little intimidating. But uh, to get, get in there and get uh, more... Uh, Attention paid to treatment, and you know the Wellstone Act, which will give uh, middle-class, private insured people equal parity in substance abuse treatment. Is that's very important, and we did some talking about that with a couple of representatives from my district and my state, and they seemed open to it. All I could hope is that this president, he does have his hands full. Uh, I'm a big fan of his, but he does have his hands full. Uh, I hope he gets addiction included in his health care reform. And, uh, I took away a lot of uh, hope out of that uh, little visit to Capitol Hill, and I'm just hoping it all goes through. Because you know how our government works. I mean, there's a big plate of things they have to take care of, and it's one thing at a time. Right, right. So hopefully our agenda will be looked at, too. Yes. Uh, Vice President Biden has always been a big supporter of the addiction treatment uh, back when he was a senator. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have hope for that as well, that he won't forget us. Yeah, but if we look at all the money we're spending on interdiction, that doesn't work. Look at the Mexican border. I mean, yeah. it's just a riot house. I uh, and, and these huge AWAC planes, which cost billions of dollars each, that fly back and forth. And sure, they show you where the smugglers are. But what can we do to get them? It's, it's really... It's almost like piracy in the high seas. It's that kind of, you know, small little fry against the big country, and and they're so hard to catch. Interdiction does not work. Education and treatment are the only things that are going to keep people away. And uh, I have a friend who's actually my instructor who runs a youth services organization for upstate New York. His name is Jack Bennett, and the youth services do so much to, like, educate young kids uh, about drugs and and. uh, that's more of that would be wonderful. I mean, prevention would be wonderful in that aspect, and treatment for those who are already bitten by the bug. You know, so uh, I'm looking forward to a country that spends a lot more money and bigger share of the pie on on uh, treatment and intervention. We'll be right back to talk more with Jimmy about client centered treatment and other topics as well. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Janine Marks, a 12-year-old, was fairly normal. She spent a lot of time online. One day, she met a new friend, 
The new friend had the same problems at home. They liked the same bands. They worried about the same subjects in school. They promised to keep each other's secrets. They wished they went to the same junior high. The new friend had good news. He said he was going to be in Janine's area one Saturday. He thought it would be amazing if they could just hang out, go to the mall. Janine agreed. The new friend didn't want parents messing this up. Janine showed up alone. So did her new friend, who wasn't in junior high, wasn't nice, and wasn't a 14-year-old boy. Every day, children are sexually solicited online. Help delete online predators. Call 1-800-THE-LOST or visit cybertipline.com to learn how to protect your kids' online life. A message from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Ad Council. What can you tell me about SkillsUSA? SkillsUSA teaches you employability skills. So you know how to deal with people, you have teamwork, your resume is going to look awesome. Well, it's important to know your technical skills, but not only that, to have soft skills, the skills of learning how to communicate with people. On the web at skillsusa.org. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today we are talking with Jimmy Destry, and we're talking about client-centered treatment and alternative ways to get treatment. And if any of you have questions, please give us a call. Um, before we went to break, we were talking a little bit about um, how prevention and treatment are really uh, the keys to um, treating addiction, and that interdiction um, has not proved to be especially effective, um, although it certainly has increased the... Um, criminal justice in prison. Uh, it's overcrowding our prisons. It is. And um, and one of the things I, this is a real tangent, but uh, I think they're going to repeal the Rockefeller laws in New York. Is that mm-hmm. true? So, so that would be I heard good. about that, yeah. Yeah. Um, but when we're talking about adolescence and prevention and treatment, I grew up in the 60s where the lyrics to the songs were, you know, all had a, some had a double meaning, some were just blatantly glamorizing sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, I mean, my kids grew up listening to rap, and they, that that stuff is pretty, uh, I mean, you know, it's not really conducive to treating women well and other yeah. things. So, you know, when we're talking about prevention and treatment, it really has to be beyond just D.A.R.E. or, or other prevention programs. And, you know, you've kind of seen this from both sides of the aisle. You you were in a rock band, but you're also now seeing the effect of the culture on adolescents. And what what is your comment about that? Well, luckily, I was I was in uh, wasn't in the kind of rock band that glorified any kind of dark, you know, uh, or or drug addled sort of lifestyle. You know, we were basically a pop band with enjoyable lyrics and stuff like that. And of course, there are for every one of us, there was ten of you know, the dark side, <laughs> something. 
you know, but I, I uh, really feel, I don't want to be typical here, but I really feel that parents should, you know, beware of what their children are listening to, uh, especially if they're still children. Uh, I'm not one to, to take away the First Amendment, but at the same time, you, know, you should be very cautious about what your children are listening to and what they think is hip and cool, and a lot of rap has, you know, made, made posturing very cool, you know, and posturing leads to the actual act sometimes. Uh, a lot of violence comes out of rap music, I would suppose. You know, I, I don't have the statistics on that, but it's something that is a distinct possibility if it goes on, you know, to, to foster more violence. And as far as drugs are concerned, sure, Mary, in the 60s, I grew up too, and, and you know, but those were the kind of drugs that were, you know, there was the experimental time, and a lot of people tried them and moved on. Those who got bitten and uh, stayed addicted, you know, I think it went beyond the music at that point. I think it's a brain chemistry thing, and the reason why we get addicted is that there's something missing in our brains and our lives and our, and our joys and our whatever that, that really makes us, uh, gives us a predilection to stay with the drug. Now, I don't know of anybody who really got opiate addicted um, from listening to records. I mean, I know a couple of people who tried acid after listening to some Beatles records, but I don't know anybody who went on an opium binge after... Uh, listening to music, and I think it was there, and they got addicted to it, and simply because it, it's such a physical high that, uh, and such a physical uh, addiction that it just it grabs you unawares. And uh, cocaine is another thing. I mean, it, I think that's independent of any kind of cultural influ- influence, uh, except that maybe in the seventies it was so, and the eighties it was so prevalent everywhere. But uh, certain people would get addicted faster than others, and that had nothing to do with the sociological lifestyle they were living or the music they were listening to or the, or the places they were going. It was really uh, when cocaine was everywhere, it was everywhere. So, you know, it was up to the person if they were going to get addicted or not, if, you know, if they were going to keep doing it. Uh, those kind of drugs, I think, go beyond any kind of influence, I think, uh, with the availability of them, uh, and crystal meth today. I mean, it, there's no sort of cultural thing. I don't know if, um, if, if it's uh, basically a drug. It, it, it's not a coastal drug. It's basically for middle America because cocaine and, and heroin don't go that deep into the country, really, and that has become the bane over there. But I think that is so addictive that it goes beyond any kind of cultural influence. So pot, on the other hand, marijuana is the type of thing where, you know, you, you see your people wearing a pot t-shirt and listening to the right rap record, you know, that's a danger, uh, especially with the sort of marijuana out there today, which is hydroponic and, and grown so scientifically, and it's very, very addictive as far as, uh, you know, uh, your lifestyle, you know, you want to just smoke and chill out every day, rather than becoming some sort of thing you have to uh, withdraw from, it's something that holds your life back, because these kids become so non-proactive that there's really nothing left for them but to smoke every day. Uh, as far as ev- every drug has got a different catch, every drug has a different sort of uh, temptation and a different sort of uh, way of uh, becoming addictive. And I think a lot of them go beyond the cultural reasons. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I would agree that uh, addiction is a brain disease and certainly yeah. for- yeah, there are a lot of things that play into it. Your your genetic predisposition, certainly you, the availability, the uh, your first experience, um, and all and all of that. I but I just I kind of harken back to 
all the people I know that followed the Grateful Dead and got you know, yeah. using a lot of acid and smoking a lot of dope. And, mm-hmm. and that was an environment that was very, it was one of the things that made it very permissive. It, it was something that people did when they followed the dead, you know, which was different than going to watch Lawrence Welk, for instance, or what, or whatever. <laughs> so, so I think that there's a, it's part of the environment. I know people, they get triggered when they hear Pink Floyd because they always did cocaine to Pink Floyd. They don't listen to Pink Floyd anymore. Really? Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, there's, yeah, music can be a real trigger for people in terms of getting their endorphins going because they used at concerts. And so when they hear the music, it's, there's like a connection there, you yeah. know. The yeah. first time I saw cocaine was at an Aerosmith concert, and the guy next to me was snorting it off a switchblade. So, you know, oh, it's God. like my first time is seeing cocaine was at a concert. So, you know, I, I, I think that certainly it's a it's not a huge part, but it's, it's a significant part of teaching kids about music and about going to concerts and what to expect. And um, yeah. we, we have a residential program, and... Um, there was a local band, there, well, actually there was a national band that came into Manchester, New Hampshire, and some of our staff went there that in recovery. They said the pot was so bad they had to leave. You know? Right. So, well, you know, I hate to see that happen because the triggers that induce a craving would be everywhere in that case. I mean, if I did, uh, you know, say if the first time I ever did cocaine was at a concert, then the next trigger would be the cell phone to call the dealer, and then the next trigger after that would be the corner where I stood, and then the triggers just go on where you're walking on eggshells for the rest of your life. So it's really hard for me as a musician to blame an initial trigger on a certain band or a concert or or something like that. But I could see that. I could see that. I don't think it's so much blaming. It's just the connection our brain makes. Yeah, yeah. There's a researcher at the University of Pennsylvania who actually goes out on street corners where people cop drugs and videotapes that and um, then takes the person back to her lab and they look at her the person's brain and they can see them, uh, when they get close to the corner, the brain starts to spike. Right. They desensitize the person to going back to that corner by watching the video over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, the way I desensitize my clients is to have them think of the crash for the 10 minutes worth of rush, you know, and associate that corner with the crash and the horrible feeling of not being able to get in touch with your dealer afterwards and needing another hit and you can't get it and you don't have the money and think all of those negatives that go after that 10-minute rush. Right. The crash is what I try to get them going on. Uh, as far as triggers go, I mean, another thing you could look at when the brain starts to spike is that that dopamine is being released without the drug. So I would tell the client, hey, you know, the brain could do it on its own. Look at that. And if you take a long enough time away from the drug, the brain will rewire where it will do it on its own at specific times in your life, not as often and not as artificially, but you will get a dopamine spike when you push your kid on the swings and, you know, you, you go to a ball game and you have fun, you know. It, it, certain things in life will give you that spike, you know. Um, it's, it's living proof. I used to ask my clients, I still do, I ask them, like, look, when you see the dealer walking up to your door, he's got a glow around him. He's the most important person in the world, you know. He's your immediate Jesus. Why? It's because he's got the stuff and your dopamine is spiking before you even did it. <laughs> so there you go. I mean, they do a study and they show the spike. The person goes to the corner and the spike happening in the brain, I don't know exactly how they're wired to do that. But it, it just proves that the brain could do it on its own without the drug. You do get the spike out of anticipation. 
And if you spend long enough away from the drug, your brain will rewire. And I think once it rewires to a certain extent, then the triggers stop. And it has for me, I mean, I was doing a $800 a day of cocaine. And I was in no mood to stop. I had the money to keep going. But at this point in my life, you could put the cocaine right in front of me, and i just laugh at it because the negatives have been so heavy that that's what I think about when I think about that drug. And uh, I think training people to sort of like Pavlovian training on people to, to avoid triggers and stuff like that, only you're going to make them walk on eggshells for the rest of their lives. A little scary to me. And um, for some people, it could be scary. For other people, it could be the thing that makes the difference for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's client-centered approach again. It's, it's picking out what a person is able to do and, and how much uh, they could put into their own recovery. Uh, some people could do it on their own uh, with basically a little guidance. And some people need hand-to-hand, you know. Right. Uh, they need to be held through the whole thing. So uh, whatever it takes, and and believe me, uh, there's no magic pill. And speaking of that, uh, opiate addicts with heroin and and methadone, I mean, uh, to me, I'd love to see everybody get off methadone, but until they're uh, together in their lives, until they have a job and a purpose and uh, some education going or, you know, they went back to school or something going on, uh, I would not start to detox them. All I would not suggest to the doctor as their as their case manager that this person is ready to detox. I couldn't do that, you know, because the, the withdrawal is going to be hell, and then after the withdrawal, the cravings. And if you're doing nothing all day, you're going to succumb to them. Uh, unfortunately, there's no methadone for cocaine, and cocaine was my personal experience. The only thing is, is time. Just right. move yourself from the drug and give it time, and let the brain rewire. But for opioids, I mean the Physical aspects are so intense. I mean, it's secondary only to alcohol and withdrawal. I think right. benzodiazepines are up there, too. Yeah. Uh, and we'll be right back for the second half of our show with Jimmy Dustry. Please give us a call if you have any questions or comments, and we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. An ordinary sunny day, an ordinary family's living room filled with an ordinary bunch of kids, and they were doing nothing. They were couch slouching, they were rug imitating, and lazy minute after... Lazy Minute was passing them by when suddenly... Huh? 
Hey guys, that's a personal foul. An active activity on a sunny day. Coming to the rescue was NFL running back Reggie Bush. Players on your lazy penalties. Let's play. Those kids, they listened to Reggie. They got up and play they did. There was fun and running. There were smiles and jumping. And laziness was crushed. Hey kids, don't get a lazy penalty. Kids, listen to Reggie and avoid lazy penalties. Be a player. Get up and play for an hour a day. Go online to check out smallstep.gov for fun playtime ideas. So you can be a player too. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Be a player. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. And our guest today is Jimmy Destry, and we're talking about client-centered Purchased a treatment, and Jimmy, could you just share with us a little bit about your own journey in terms of your cocaine addiction and treatment? Sure. Well, it's, it was a long journey. Uh, I started when I was about 25 years old, and uh, I started snorting cocaine. It was in the mid 70s, late mid to late 70s, early 80s, when cocaine was ballooning around the country. You know, and I was in all the places where it was prevalent, where I was in Studio 54 when the big cocaine sign came up, and uh, they actually had a, a neon spoon that went up to a neon nose, and then the whole place would light up and everybody would snort. It was just insane. And, uh, you know, it was, it was accepted. It was the drug for the upper class. It was not considered so much of an addictive drug at the time. Right. It was not, quote-unquote, physically addictive, which we found to be false later on. Of course, it's physically addictive because when you squeeze all the dopamine out of your head, that's a physical thing. You know, so uh, I was uh, started off just as a, you know, a social user, and that went on into heavy user, and that went on into full-blown, full-blown addiction. And full-blown addiction was the result of my having the money to keep going. And so I was a functioning addict for the longest time. I mean, all I had to do was write music and play music, and that came natural to me. And I was able to write on cocaine. I was able to play on cocaine. I was able to live on cocaine and do everything. And, uh, you know, there were periods where my abstinence kicked in here and there when I started a family my first family, but that was a codependent situation where my ex-wife and I were both doing cocaine. And so year after year after year, there was always cocaine involved in my life. It was almost as if, here's my yearly budget, and a certain percent of it's going to be for my cocaine. Uh, it got really hairy uh, about 12 years ago. 
the last seven years of my addiction when I would wake up in the morning and just think about where am I going to score. And I would do what I had to do and go to my meetings and go to my rehearsals and go on my tours, but it was always when I woke up, where am I going to score? Because Did I, it affect your performance? It didn't so much affect my performance as it affected my next day. You know, and when you're doing four or five shows a week, it started to play on me, you know, really heavily. And uh, I would just play and sleep and then do cocaine. Uh, it, and the thing about performance is that it's such a natural high to play for twenty, thirty thousand people at a time uh, and have a great show and have an encore and then another encore and then, you know, have a sense of this ultimate power from doing that. And, and the, the real dopamine rush that, you know, you, you really get out of, a unique situation. I mean, it's the only job in the world where they applaud when you finish working. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so yeah. that rush is natural and everything, but you want to fill, you want to keep that going. And when you would come off the road, I would be just a heavy addict to keep it going. I would come off the road after a six-week tour, not even go to sleep, go immediately to score and stay up for another two days just basking in it. And uh, it made the actual playing and the road and everything seem less than it actually was because I was artificially uh, expanding that experience. And it just wasn't right anymore. And at a certain point, I said to myself, if the 25-some-odd years of the same thing over and over with just slight uh, relapses of sobriety thrown in, <laughs> you know, uh, that that was enough. It was really enough. I met somebody, Robbie, my current wife, who just said, you know what, you're not worthless. I don't know why you're doing this. Uh, it's just simply not who you are. And she saw through the addiction. She was the first one to do that because everybody else was used to Jimmy the Addict, you know, even my band members and stuff like that, and I was really hard to deal with. But this person saw it, and I just needed one person to see me uh, in a light that wasn't, you know, addled by cocaine, shaded by cocaine. And she saw me in a, in a couple of instances where I was sober and, you know, related that, that to when I was high and said, this is the real Jimmy and something's got to be done here. And I had gone to so many different treatment centers and so many different programs until I found a place upstate called St. Jude's. She found it for me. And it's a total CBT, uh, non-12-step uh, treatment that works. It's educational. They don't even call themselves a rehab because it's, it's an educational program about drugs and alcohol. And I learned there that, you know, it was really up to me and it's responsibility and it's a maturity program. And, hey, you know, anxiety is part of life and, you know, being bored sometimes is part of life and you can't be uh, spoiled every waking moment of the day. And it takes eight weeks, which is smart because you don't really start to... Uh, uh, your brain doesn't start to rewire until about five, six weeks after your last binge. And that was wonderful, having the absolute uh, distance from it for the first time because uh, everything else was a 28-day program, which I just consider sort of, for me anyway, it was just drying out and right. going back, right back out to it. But the uh, six to eight weeks, and I stood longer, was wonderful because I actually distanced myself from it and I was actually waking up in the morning and wanting to do things again. And I was so interested in recovery at that point that I wanted to move on and that's when I, and, and become a counselor. And that's when I made the decision to do that. So I, 
There is a post-acute withdrawal syndrome that does last about a year with any drug that you're addicted to for as long as I've been addicted. And uh, I did spend a year sort of confused doing just simple concrete things and trying to get my life back together. And that's when I decided to go back to school after about a year. And uh, basically the whole 25 years went by in a blur. And there are certain things that I should remember and cherish, but I really don't because of the cocaine. And did you go back on the road once you got sober? Uh, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. It's, there was a whole personal thing with the group, uh, part of it due to the addiction, and the other part just personal that I can't talk about now, and it's, you know, there were lawsuits involved and stuff like that. But, uh, no, I didn't go back on the road, and uh, I didn't have the opportunity to. You know what? I really don't want to because I really I, I can't wait to get up to go to work in the morning. I just love what I do now more than It's a very rewarding profession. It really is. <laughs> it really is. I, I tell people, well, I used to touch like 14,000 people a little. Now I touch 14 people a lot. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot better for me anyway, to, to still have an audience of, you know, in a group and, <laughs> and, and, and play to that. Uh, and I do play to it. I mean, my groups are a lot of fun, uh, but they do work. Do you think musicians, the whole musical music industry, musicians are more susceptible to addiction? I think people who are out there in the public and have a lot of pressure on them, uh, people with a lot more pressure than I ever had, yeah, they're they're very uh, susceptible to it. I think people who play live uh, and have that rush every day, uh, they're going to want to have that rush more often than not. And, uh, you know, it's only six weeks at a time you go on the road. The rest of the time you're sort of... You crash. You literally crash. You're like, oh, my God, what do I do today? Go to the movies? There's nothing to do when you're at home. Of course, you miss your family. You bounce your kids around a little. But then you're, you're sort of like in another world when you're not playing. And uh, I really don't want that up-and-down life cycle anymore. It's really uh, it's debilitating at times, you know? Oh, you know, show, show after show, and then what's today? Oh, it's just Tuesday. You know, it's, it's a little rough. So I could see how a lot of people become addicted because they could become addicted to that rush. You know, and there's nothing like that rush. Believe me, and this is coming from a cocaine addict, there's nothing like the rush of performing live. It's, it's just phenomenal. And a lot of the times on stage, I wasn't even high because it's hard to perform high. So I would just be sober and look forward to the day I was playing. You know, And that would be the ultimate rush. So I could so, see that. Do you still write music? Yes, I do. Yeah? Yeah, I'm writing all the time. I love to write. Yeah, and do you uh, perform? No, no. I sort of perform for my wife and daughter. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> I don't want to perform anymore. I mean, every now and then I get an urge to throw a little combo together and go play, but then I have treatment plans to do, so <laughs> they get in the way. Yeah, treatment plans always get in the way. They always get in the way. <laughs> The treatment plans and the daily progress notes and the group notes and the, the URs, everything. They all get in the way. <laughs> but they're a lot. They're, they're part of the job. They're the part of the job that's not that much fun. But, you know, when, when you do a good treatment plan and it starts to work for the client, it's a good feeling. Um, when, when you think about um, treatment and you've had, as you said, multiple experiences with treatment, mm -hmm. um, 
did you what did you get out of the twenty eight day rehab that you went to? Was there anything that kind of built onto the next to the next? Or was yeah, well, some of them I got a lot out of you know hanging around the smoking table because I didn't quit smoking until recently. And I would hang around the table outside and laugh with the guys, and I would think to myself, hey, I'm laughing. I'm having fun. A bunch of guys, you know, treatment zeroes everybody out. Yeah. You know, and, and I was in some facilities with supermodels and actors and whatever, and, but we were all just addicts. Yeah. And we were all zeroed out, and we got to know each other. We were laughing and finding out funny things about our lives, and it was, it was just this the joy of laughing again. And I use that a lot in treatment now. I mean, just to have people laugh and to look at your situation and go, you know, dead but for the grace of God go I. Let's laugh. Uh, it's, it's really important. And uh, a lot of the places I was in, I met some wonderful people. I still keep in touch with some of them. And I laughed a lot. And uh, I got, you know, a uh, sort of sense of everybody is, everybody's got problems that, that are devastating. I mean, everybody's life runs a really... Uh... Yeah. We'll be right back with our final segment in just a moment. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. An ordinary sunny day, an ordinary family's living room filled with an ordinary bunch of kids, and they were doing nothing. They were couch slouching, they were rug imitating, and lazy minute after... Lazy Minute was passing them by when suddenly... Huh? Hey, guys, that's a personal foul. An active activity on a sunny day. Coming to the rescue was NFL running back Reggie Bush. Players on your lazy penalties. Let's play. Those kids, they listened to Reggie. They got up and play they did. There was fun and running. There were smiles and jumping. And laziness was crushed. Hey, kids. Don't get a lazy penalty. Kids, listen to Reggie and avoid lazy penalties. Be a player. Get up and play for an hour a day. Go online to check out smallstep.gov for fun playtime ideas. So you can be a player, too. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Be a player. Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. During the break, Jimmy and I were talking a little bit about um, some of the things that Jimmy has been saying um, are non-traditional ways of looking at addiction treatment. And some addiction providers would say, um, would take issue with some of the things that you said, Jimmy. And I'm just wondering um, what you feel about that. Well, uh, I, I wanted to take issue. I want to talk about this. I want it to be an open dialogue. I believe that... Uh, First of all, I have nothing but respect for Alcoholics Anonymous and the, the whole system and the 12 steps. I think they're beautifully, uh, they're beautiful uh, pathway toward, toward sobriety. However, it's an 80-year-old system. And, uh, you know, there are new developments and there's uh, therapies and, and there's new advancements in brain science and all of that should be taken into account. I believe that your basic... A path towards sobriety is maturity and responsibility and ownership of what you've done. And to to call it a disease and put it in the same uh, league as some really debilitating diseases, sort of an insult to those other people who are suffering from those diseases, which they get genetically and not by choice. And, you know, so we always make a choice to start with drugs. And the choice is a, is something that is an exercise of human will. It's not something you're born with. It, you might have a predilection, but in twin studies, you, it, it's nature and nurture, you know. In twin studies, one twin could be an addict and the other twin could be, you know, totally sober. I mean, let's look at it in, in real, realistic terms. It's really, really hard to call this a disease if you look at the real the real outlines of what a disease is. I mean, if you tell a child dying of cancer in Sloan Kettering Hospital that he could get better if he never drinks milk again, I bet that child, as young as he is, is going to make that choice never to drink milk again. So what's so hard about addiction? Addiction is wanting to feel good over and over and over again. And if you could face the fact that that's false and you're going to eventually die from it, hey, you, you get better, but you have to face the fact. And that's ownership, and that's maturity, and that's when we step up, you know. And I found that a lot of people willing to step up do get better. Well, and that's certainly one way of looking at it. From my perspective, um, I mean, I started out my career as a registered nurse, so the whole medical model resonates with me um, for a whole bunch of reasons. But um, I can certainly understand your perspective as well, and I think it's important that we have discussions like this so that people can really ferret out. Um, people's beliefs and not just be in lockstep with someone because that's what I was told to think. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, uh, again, whatever works. Right. (laughs) And if a client is willing to accept a disease and accept meetings for the rest of their life, which I consider to be emotional dialysis, but for them it might be so necessary as long as they stay sober and become productive and are able to have families and live, why not? You know, whatever it takes. You know, one of the things that we're also seeing now is that um, addiction treatment has kind of become entertainment. There are a couple shows that have been on television um, where, you know, there's 
there's shows where people are intervened on, and then there's other there's an actual reality TV show. And uh, what are your thoughts about that? Because you had mentioned being Dimension. I think Dimension is a very good show. Uh, I I think uh, uh, it shows how a family should be involved, and when an intervention it increases awareness on addiction, and and that first step is getting them in the door. The celebrity rehab thing. I just can't stand that. I mean, I don't understand how you could get well with a camera on you 24-7. I think their main addiction is, is the camera. <laughs> and I, I think they're narcissists beyond belief. I, I think if you look at their narcissism, that might be the first cause of why they're addicts. Me, me, I, I, now, now. You know, uh, I don't believe that you could do that on camera. And why is Dr. Drew wearing a stethoscope? I mean, come on. <laughs> he's got his medical staff around him. If, if those people are KSACs or, you know, uh, nurses and everything. I mean, it, it's totally playing to the camera. From from the clinicians down to the addicts, it's totally playing to the camera. And I really have issues with that show. But Intervention is a very good show, and it's it really does uh, show you how, if you have a problem in your own home or within your own family, to, how to go about it. You know, it's 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 a great tool. Uh, any other so the sober house and celebrity rehab, I just think that's entertainment TV. I don't think it's anything more than that. Yeah, I, unfortunately, though, I mean, you know, they get Prism Awards, they get you know, music. I mean, they get Entertainment Industry Awards, and yeah. Um, I, from my perspective, I think that treatment is a very personal thing. It's a confidential yeah. thing, and. Um, you know, I, I don't know, I just, I, I would think it would be hard enough as, as a celebrity to enter treatment anyway. Yeah. Um, and, but then to be put on a, on camera and just, I mean, people make fun of them. I mean. Well, yeah, well, don't forget they're signing on to that and their main addiction is the camera. Yeah. I mean, that, and that, that could be a cause for their drug use. I mean, their constant need to be seen. Uh, it's, it's beyond belief how... People can't see that, and, you know, it's just like if they had surgery on TV once a week, it would be equally as invasive <laughs> in more right. ways than one, right. pun not intended, but I, I, mean, I just don't understand. Well, they do have surgery on TV, but you don't know who the patient is. Yeah, exactly. You have something, you know, you know blocking the patient's face. Right, right. Nor do but, they ever get their name. You know, you get to see the robot do that. Open heart surgery. Right, but what is the deal with, with having, you know, Jeff Conaway just make an ass out of himself in front of the whole world? Yeah. I mean, the poor guy is is addicted to being on television, and he's lost his chance, and now this is his only chance. Maybe if he got better, he could be on television as an actor. Right. But he's never going to get better under these circumstances, and it, it, it befuddles me how they can't see that, or maybe they do and don't care. Well, but then what about the treatment providers? How can they not see that? That's, what, that, that's my that point, the treatment more. providers. It befuddles me how Dr. Drupinski doesn't realize he's taking advantage of these people. Yeah. And they're taking advantage of him. So I'm, I'm very, very adamant about my dislike for that show and the whole thing behind it. You know, And I'm not sure how much of a treatment professional he is. He had a love line. On the radio, you know, I got nothing against you, Drew. You're making a buck, but please make it in another way. Yeah. 
really making a mockery out of what you and I do, Mary. Yeah, I, yeah, that I could certainly agree with that one. Um, to try to kind of end this on a more uplifting and positive note. Okay. Um, I'm wondering, in terms of, if you had like one thing to say to people who were um, listening to this, who wanted to um, get help, what would you say to them? I'd say go in now, go in fast, and go in soon because it's a matter of time. The only thing, and I think you and I would both agree on this, uh, no matter what sort of treatment you uh, sign up for, uh, what you would like, whether it's cognitive behavior therapy, 12-step, non-AA, whatever, get it early. And the only thing that does work is time, time away from that drug or the alcohol or whatever it is. Uh, You need time away from it. Your brain needs to rewire. Please go soon. Please go as soon as you realize you have a problem. Please go uh, when somebody tells you you have a problem. Please listen to yourself and listen to those around you when you have those doubts about what you're doing uh, because you are on a downward path. And When When you make the decision to go, is there one question people should ask to determine whether it's client-centered treatment they're getting or treatment as usual? Yeah. How are you going to help me get better? Not what do I have to do, but how are you going to help me? Uh, what kind of program is this? Um, is it something I believe in? Is it something I can work? Is it something that I would be willing to work? Uh, because if people are not willing, they're not going to get better, and you've got to do as much as you can to make them willing. And uh, go to somebody that gives you hope. The installation of hope is the first thing you should get from a clinician. Not somebody who looks at you and, and tells you that you're going to sink and you're, you're, your addiction's out in the yard doing push-ups while you're in here. Get hope, and, and hope is the, is the main physic for this, for this affliction. Uh, no um, thank you so much, Jimmy, for uh, being our guest this week and for sharing your journey with us. <laughs> thank you, Mary. And uh, good luck on your test. All right, thanks. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Have a good week, everyone. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.